Hello and welcome to the Green Canary. Today on the show, we're going to be talking to Anjali Sharma, who took the Federal Environment Minister to court, as you do. We're going to be talking about the Great Barrier Reef, which unfortunately has had, it appears, another bleaching event. We're going to be talking about duck hunting, which makes me really mad, but we'll get there. I'm at Sharwood. I'm sitting opposite Elfie Scott, who never makes me mad. How are you, Elfie? <laughs> I'm good, thank you, Anne. Thanks for saying that. That means a lot. <laughs> no problem at all. <laughs> if it's the least you can say about someone is they don't make me angry. <laughs> what a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> it's not, not the strongest basis for a relationship, but it's a start, <laughs> as in for a professional podcasting relationship. Let's make that podcast. What's happening today, Alfie? All right. Well, let's start off with the big environment news story of the week. Um, And you mentioned her in the introduction. But this week, I spoke to Anjali Sharma, who was one of a group of eight young people who launched a class action that argued that the Environment Minister Susan Lay had had a duty of care to protect young people from climate change. And that needed to be a consideration in the approval for fossil fuel projects. Now, Ant, if you remember last... Last May, they actually had a victory. So a court found that the duty of care actually did exist. And then now this week, that decision has been unanimously overturned in a federal court by three judges. It was disappointing. I I remember thinking, wow, that's a terrific ruling. That has Mm. amazing implications for the future. Um, So many legislative things can happen down the track from a government that, by law, must look after the future. That means they've got to really look at fossil fuel projects seriously, as in not look at them. Uh, But as you say, it's been overturned. Can't wait to hear your interview with Anjali. Yeah, absolutely. So it was a a really interesting chat. It was very emotive. um, And we spoke about exactly like you say, that sort of promise of this big precedent just being overturned and that feeling just being extinguished. So we will listen to that now. Hi, Anjali. So I'm going to ask you the obvious question and I apologise for that in advance, but how are you feeling after yesterday? It's been a roller coaster. Um, I obviously, as soon as I heard the words um, said by the justice that we've decided not to impose this duty of care, straight away crushed. Um, we'd all been sitting in the courtroom holding each other's hands. I'd never, never been squeezed tighter from both directions. And um, the heartbreak, like, I felt all of our hearts break together. And I think that carried on throughout the day. Um, there was almost a sense of what's the point of, you know, doing activism when you just get knocked back um, at such a high level. But I think going out of the courtroom, um, walking out, holding the other litigants' hands and um, fronting the media and hearing all of them speak so passionately and seeing the tears that were, you know, so open and everyone talking about their personal experiences and why they've been fighting this fight for so long um, has made me realise that no matter how much we're knocked back, um, it's in no way the end. We'll be back in some way, whether that's an appeal or whether that's back on the streets. There's always more to do because this fight is about the lives of people and that's not something that you give up easily. Absolutely. 
I also wanted to speak about what happened in court because I know that the judges gave different reasons for their decisions. And one of those reasons was that the duty of care isn't in the environment minister's job description, basically. And it's up to parliament to make calls on that and not the courts. And I wonder what you make of that, especially considering how much of an impossible position that puts your argument in. Yeah, well, I've been I've been taught since year 10 legal studies that the role of courts is to act as a check on parliament. Um, that's that's why we established courts like the federal court and the high court to ensure that the um, to ensure that our parliamentarians are you know keeping in mind the best interests of of the people. And if you feel that that's not something that's being that's being done, that's not something that's being reflected by those in positions of power, then that's what you use the courts for, to act as a check on parliament. Um, I can't criticise the courts in any way, shape or form. Um, I know that it was a very extensive deliberation and that all three judges um, would have pondered both sides very carefully. Um, I've got to admit, you can't help being very crushed that there were certain legal technicalities concerning the role of courts and concerning the fact that the environment minister may or may not to breach this supposed duty that stopped the duty from being opposed in the first place. Um, because in my mind, a moral, moral obligation will always be stronger than any legal technicality. But um, I definitely don't think that this is a matter that should be left to the poli- to the politicians. Um, I think that courts have a really big role to play in climate policy, given how politicised it is. And um, I'm glad that we got to use it as an avenue. Why did you feel like you wanted to take this to the courts to begin with, especially considering the fact that the school strike for climate movement, for example, has seen such massive successes? Is taking it to the courts more effective than protesting, to your mind? Um, I think that every avenue for change has its place. I think that there's so much to be said about the power of mobilising and of the power of strikes and popular movements and, you know, violent, non-violent, every single thing has its place. And I think that the courts have a very, very special role to play in that in the way that they can set precedent, they can they can change the law in effect. And I think that's what we really aim to do. Um, that's something that striking can't do. You know, you can't set precedent that can be used then to bind lower courts and to flow onto other cases through a strike. Um, I think every avenue for change has its role to play. And that's what we really hoped for is to set a really strong precedent that could potentially prevent the passing of any new fossil fuel projects. Um, Mm. Very disappointed that didn't happen. But um, yeah, I can't discount the role of the court in that. I also read your column in the Sydney Morning Herald, which was striking and really beautifully written. And you spoke of your country of origin, India, in that column and the impact that natural disasters and pollution have there. And I want to discuss why you think it was important to bring that up and what you want Australians to understand when you speak about your experiences in India. Yeah, I guess that's what I mean when I say that climate action is not a passion project. It's not an after-school activity. It's not an extracurricular club. It's not something that you pick up because you have a bunch of time on your hands or because you want to get in media headlines. It's 
it's about the lives of people and it's about their livelihoods and it's about their mental health and it's about protecting them and it's about the most vulnerable and it always, always has been. Um, that's why I continuously bring it up because this is something that not many people have seen firsthand that even those who approach climate action with a lens that you know, wants to push for more action for stronger emissions reductions policies, many of them come at it from the angle of, um, you know, something that's very far off for them, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Like, it's it's rising sea levels, sure, it's melting ice caps, but that's not something that they've experienced and that's not something that um, they perceive in their futures. And unfortunately, that's not the case for so many people. Um, but for those people they often don't have a voice and another thing with india is the fact that something like this like taking your government to court could never be done in a country like that you can barely you can barely mobilize in india you know you can't it's not such a democratic process and so that's why we have so much privilege here like to be living in australia um Relative to the rest of the world, Australia is an extremely developed country, um, no matter what the connotations of that are. And, yeah. I think it's such an important point, and I really loved how you wrote about it in the column. Just to wrap up, I just want to touch on something that you mentioned before. We were talking about the court's decision, and you mentioned the precedent and the flow-on effects within courts. So even though this decision about duty of care has not been set as a precedent in legal terms now, do you believe that it has set the precedent in terms of inspiration for other climate activists? When we first launched this case and we went to trial in March 2021, um, following the huge media storm after that, I got the most beautiful message from um, someone in Melbourne who, a person of colour in Melbourne actually, and she Um, she wrote to me and she said that um, I'd inspired her daughter, who is also um, from India, to um, also push for action on climate change because for people of colour and people with ethnic last names, it's great to see so much activism in the headlines, but you rarely ever see yourself represented. Um, And so I know that I've broken heaps of glass ceilings with mm-hmm. you know being Sharma versus environment are not a um a very ethnic name um within the federal court and being the only person of color in the case and yet being first named um I really hope that it has inspired many people um young people people of color um anybody who cares um, about an issue. Once I got told that a class action is a very undemocratic thing to do because, um, well, you know, they shared the view that policymaking should be left to politicians. But I think that if you have this much passion about something and you're willing to put in the time alongside school and the emotional effort that it takes to continuously talk to media and tell them about your story and tell them why you're doing what you're doing and to face the negative comments, then you should go for it. And I really hope that I've inspired people to do that. Anjali Sharma, who was one of those eight young people who launched that class action to say that the environment minister has a duty of care. And 
how incredible is she? I'm inspired. I'm actually absolutely inspired. I mean, I was I was writing down some of the quotes she was saying there. Um, they should be listen to this one. A moral of this is what she said. A moral obligation will always be stronger than any legal technicality. I mean, imagine just saying that off the bat. I know off the bat. I mean, and if she wasn't reading from a script, that should be chiselled in in marble on the front of some (laughs) big important building in the city somewhere. You know, it's it's she's eloquent. Um, She's walking the walk, talking the talk. Absolutely love her work. Good interview. Well done. Let's move on. And as flagged, um, our second story of the week, it's not its not good news. It's the reef. It looks like it's bleaching again. Mm-hmm. Um, it has bleached six times, if this indeed is the sixth time. Um, 1998 was the first time. Um, th- there, was, there was a few in a batch, and now we're, we're having about the third bleaching event in the last five, six years. Um, it's... It comes at an important time, doesn't it? Because the the, the reef is just about to be uh, assessed by UNESCO. Yeah, so it's really interesting that this news has come only a couple of days before the UNESCO delegation landed in Queensland. And they are assessing the reef to figure out whether or not to list it as an endangered World Heritage Site. So this is something that you might have seen in the headlines that the government's been going back and forth with UNESCO and trying to fight against this. But ultimately, what they're doing right now is assessing it and seeing if that listing should be made. Which is just, um, I, I hope. Oh, look, I don't even know what to hope for. I, don't, I, you know, it's hard to know what to cheer for. Endangered is bad, but but as we've learned with some of the animals we've looked at lately, endangered can actually help protect things in a way as well. So, yeah. so it hardly matters. But what matters is is that it's happening. Also, it's interesting just quickly why it's happening. Um, the waters in Queensland, and this is the weather nerd in me, and listeners <laughs> by now probably are getting used to the fact that. I follow the weather closely. I write about the weather partly uh, during the week, and I love the weather. I'm interested in the weather, uh, but this is just a shocking graph to me. This, you know, for those who 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 are listening rather than watching on on YouTube or wherever, um, sea surface temperature anomalies. Basically, I'm looking at the whole Queensland coast, and everything in yellow is one degree warmer than normal. Everything in sort of pale yellowy orange is one and a half, and everything orangey red is two degrees or warmer there's a lot of orange and orangey yeah, red there big patches too so, so everything in um the reefs you know whereabouts is one to about two and a half degrees above normal and this is a la nina year temps in the water are normally cooler in la nina years so that does not bode well for the future of the reef I'm afraid, Elfie. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, this is exactly the future that those young people were fighting for, isn't it? Oh, that is so well tied in. Mm-hmm. Let's let's absolutely throw that section out then. Well done. And moved, <laughs> move on to mulch, our little um, part of the podcast where we just quickly run through some of the uh, lesser environmental news stories of the week. Well, lesser, some would say, but uh, I um, am absolutely fired up about this one the seals do you want to talk about the seals okay so this is a story that i had never heard about before until you put it across my desk earlier this week and i was like what is going on i did not know that this happened but basically companies in tasmania are allowed to use underwater explosives which are known as seal crackers 
uh, to deter the predators from farms in state waters. It's legal to shoot seals with fabric-coated plastic shells that contain a lead shot, as well as darts with blunt tips to scare them off. But basically, it's killing and maiming seals in Tasmanian waters, and conservation groups have had enough of it. And conservation groups have also asked the Tasmanian government and the federal government to step in, but they won't. Um, The... Look, I've read Toxic, uh, Richard Flanagan's book about the Tasmanian salmon industry. Mm-hmm. It's a huge industry. It's a dirty industry. Uh, I don't mean that legally, although others may go down that track. I mean, it actually is dirty. It pollutes the waters. Um, it's it's a shocking industry. Reading that book just absolutely made me vow never to buy farmed salmon again, Oof. and I certainly yeah. haven't. And now the fact that they're going around shooting seals, what kind of person thinks I'll shoot a seal today to keep my salmon herd flock school, salmon school happy. I mean, it's it's just atrocious. And, and I, I think it's important that you and I talk about stories like this. It's important they run in the media because at some point consumers out there go, this is bloody ridiculous. Yeah. Um, it's one thing all right, there's not enough wild salmon out there. We need to farm them at some level. Hopefully we can do it as cleanly as possible. But if we do it, and that involves shooting seals... Killing seals as well. then By accident, but killing seals sometimes, then sorry, salmon is off the menu. And I'll tell yeah. you what else is off the menu. Duck. Duck. <laughs> So, and is very fired up about this story, so I'll (laughs) kick it off. But basically, wildlife conservationists have been speaking out against duck hunting season in Victoria this year. So it kicks off this week and carries through until June. And I didn't know this, but duck hunting is legal in Victoria. And conservationists are really riled up about it because they're reporting that prohibited species are being shot and also ducks are just being maimed in this really cruel way. It's been going on forever. It's been going on for, for absolutely ever. And look, I, I, I'm, I've actually interviewed hunters in Victoria. I'm probably the only person in this room, because there's two of us here, that, <laughs> that has interviewed hunters. They were deer hunters and they were lovely people. Um, the number plate on their truck uh, was Oh Deer, spelled D-E-E-R. So they had a sense of humour. They gave me lunch. They were nice people. Hunters, it's not my thing. I don't want to kill animals for sport. I don't want to kill animals for humour and for fun. Mm. I understand that some people do. I don't understand the duck season in Victoria. They kill as many as 400,000 birds. They all live in wetlands. Now, wetlands, good for the wetlands this summer. They all had a little La Nina fill-up, but we know that wetlands are struggling um, ecosystems in Australia at the best of times. And people are out there, and I'm going to list a few duck species because we're just talking about ducks. But it kind of humanises them, duckmanises them. (laughs) When we talk about the black duck and the grey teal duck and the wood duck. And the mountain duck and the pink-eared duck. Oh, a little pink-eared duck. Who could shoot a pink-eared duck? Do ducks even have ears? <laughs> I wish the audience could see Ant's face right now. There's <laughs> nothing but outrage. The chestnut teal duck. I could go on. Anyway, duck season is happening. Uh, it isn't legal in New South Wales, Queensland, or WA. For some reason, it still goes ahead in Victoria. You can only bag four birds, but as I said, it adds up to 400,000 over the season. Not happy. Yeah, yeah. All right, let's jump into some good bird news to wrap up the podcast because at least this is a nice little story. But over in Western Australia, there's a threatened bird called the Carnaby's Black Cockatoo. It's really cute if you want to look up photos of it, by the way. But they have had a record breeding season because of this handy invention created by some researchers, which basically provides a sort of plastic 
tube or hollow for these birds to be nesting in. And so to just give you some context about how in trouble they were, back in 2009, there were only 41 nests in this breeding region. And now this year, they have seen 138 nests. So this bird is bouncing back and it's really lovely to see. Carnabies are awesome, Elfie. Um, I've camped in the uh, Warren National Park near Pemberton in southwest WA um, in a grove of curry trees. Uh, all the WA cliches with kangaroo paw growing along the riverbank. Oh, beautiful. And, Take me there. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. carnabies uh, d- making carnaby noises. We should have teed up the carnaby noises, but we didn't think that far ahead. In the trees, they're a great, they're a smaller black cockatoo than the yellow tail that, that Eastern States people might know. But yeah, look. Just like all over the place, there are not enough nesting hollows for them. They are using these plastic hollows. Imagine if you made them out of recycled plastic. How many environmental problems could you solve at the one time? But anyway, good news is the tubes are working and the carnabies are breeding. And I love that. I absolutely love that. So that's some good news to end on this week. (laughs) And is very bird enthusiastic. (laughs) All right. So that is all we have time for today. Thank you so much for joining us. Before we head off, we would like to, as ever, acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we are recording, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We'd like to pay our respects to elders past and present, as well as extend that respect to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people here today. Very nicely said as ever. And I just like to do our little social uh, reminder. You can catch us out there on Instagram at Green Canary Media. We are at Green Canary Pod on Twitter. Come and have a little chirp with us there. <laughs> and of course, my newsletter, our newsletter, written by me at the moment, goes out on Wednesdays. All of what was in the podcast, plus a bit more, plus some really lovely pictures. Uh, just email hello at thegreencanary.co. And I will send you one of those. Yeah, it's a really good read, guys. Everybody sign up and we will see you next week. Thanks, Elfie. Bye. See you all. Carnabies.